Let's go ahead and pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us with a very clear voice this morning. We pray that it would not be the voice of a man, but that it be the voice of you, our Heavenly Father, that we hear. May you speak into the recesses and the corners and the dark shadows of our hearts and our minds and our souls. May we know that it is your voice that calls to us. It can only happen by the power of your Spirit, so we pray that your Spirit would move and stir in this room and stir according to your word. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34, this is the holy inerrant word of God. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we've said over the last uh, few weeks, as we've been doing this series on worship, that our worship is to be formed by the Word of God, it's to be directed by the Word of God, it's to be according to the Word of God, it's to be filled with the Word of God. This is how we structure our services and this is what we do in our services. And so, as we've said in previous weeks, we read the Word of God, we preach the Word of God, we sing the Word of God, we pray the Word of God, we confess the Word of God, and we see the Word of God. And as we looked at last week, we see the Word of God in the sacraments. That is, God has given us a visible Word, as Augustine said. What you hear read, what you hear preached is what you see before you in the sacraments. The same Word, the Gospel. And as we saw last week, 
As we talked about last week, there are two sacraments in the New Testament church, the first being baptism and the second being the Lord's table, the Lord's supper or the Eucharist or communion, whatever it is that you call it, it all refers to the same thing. And it is this, it's this significant meal that we all enter into together. And it is a significant meal. As Paul says here in verse 23, on the night in which he was betrayed. It was on the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed that he established the supper. And that he commanded his disciples that they were to observe this supper until he returned again. On the night that he was betrayed... When he knew that there were plots going on outside, that there was scheming, that there were lies that were being passed along, and that he was going to be arrested, and that he was going to be tried, and that he was going to be ultimately executed, on the very night that he knows that all of these things are coming together, he sits down with his disciples, and he institutes this sacrament, the Lord's table of great significance. He gathers together with them and he says, he prays as the scriptures say and then he breaks the bread and then he says, this is my body which is for you. And then it says, after supper he took the cup and he says, this cup, two separate acts, the bread first, then the cup. He then takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. And he commanded his disciples to practice this in the church for generations to come because it is of significance to our Lord. In fact, Paul's words here underscore the significance of the sacrament in the mind of our Lord. When Paul says this, he says in verse 22, he says, For I received from the Lord. Now, Paul wasn't at that meal. He wasn't there with those disciples sitting around the table. But Paul says he received this from the Lord. That means that the glorified Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, in some revelatory way, communicated the observance of the Lord's Supper to Paul. The glorified Christ in heaven. This meal is of significance to us because it was of significance and is of significance to our Lord. Why is a sacrament of such significance? Well, from the text this morning, I want to look at it in three ways and give three reasons why. First, this meal is of such significance because it signifies and it seals our union with one another. Second, it is of such significance because it signifies and seals our union with Christ. And third, it is of significance because it signifies and seals Christ's union with us. So first, it is of such significance because it signifies and seals our union with one another. If you look back up to verse 17 through verse 22, you'll see this. Let me read it for us since we didn't read it before. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, for, but for the worse, Paul says. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. There are divisions. They're coming together to eat the table, and they're divided. Paul, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, will make this very clear in chapter 1, where he says that there are those that are claiming that they are of Apollos, or they are of Paul, or they are of Cephas. And Paul says to them, is Christ himself divided? That you would divide yourselves and say, I belong to Paul, I belong to Peter, I belong to Apollos. He says, how can it ever be? Of course, Christ isn't divided. Some of you are gorging yourselves at the table, and others are going hungry, and it's, it's turning the significance of the table on its head, Paul is saying. You're just looking out for number one instead of one another. It signifies and seals our union with one another. We sit at one table when we feast together. There's a church that I'm familiar with that is wider than our church is wide, and it has this huge wide center aisle that goes from front to back. And on their Lord's table Sundays, they line that middle aisle with tables that go all the way down the center of the aisle. And then on Lord's Supper Sunday, Everybody streams from the sides and they sit down together at the table. No one's head above anyone else's head. All sitting at the same table together. All partaking of the same loaf and partaking of the same cup. None more significant than any other. But unified. Together. All on level ground. Taking from the same bounty that has been provided. There's acceptance at a table, isn't there? It, it speaks of belonging. I think it's no accident that in the 1960s, when uh, African Americans in this country were, were protesting the lack of acceptance, especially in the Deep South, some of the most monumental moments were when they pulled up to a diner counter where supposedly only whites were to be served. And this was of such great offense because how dare you think of eating on the same level as us? There is significance in sitting down at a table together. It speaks of belonging. It speaks of togetherness, it speaks of love, it speaks of unity. This is why it's so important when someone invites your family over to their house to eat. It creates a bond like anything else. How much more so here at the Lord's table? It heals divisions, it heals personal injury. Some of you have experienced real anger in the body of Christ from others. You've experienced real gossip about you. You've experienced real slander about you. You've 
experience real being pushed to the side and feeling like you don't belong, real lying about you. And there is healing when you come together at the table. Others, it's but perceived something purely in our mind or our hearts, and often that is because of assumptions we've made. We've jumped to conclusions about others, but it seems very real to us that they somehow have offended us, that they somehow have been unkind to us. And often we are the hardest on family, even the family here, and shouldn't be. I was uh, this week uh, taking a doctoral class in Charlotte, and it's a long story, but it kept getting delayed flying back, and Friday night I finally got back late to Detroit in the airport, and then of course I lost my key to my car, and uh, so I gave up, and I just went to a hotel, and that morning, uh, yesterday morning, I got up and went to the Continental Breakfast at the hotel, and I was watching this couple, and this wife would ask a condescending question of her husband, and every time he would answer, she would give him just this curt, dismissive, kind of contemptuous reply at everything that he said. I mean, you could just feel her disdain for him. And I was standing behind her as she's having this exchange with her husband, and and I'm just waiting to get one of those beautiful plastic spoons so I could eat my oatmeal. And I'm thinking, just treat him with kindness. And she turns around and she sees me standing there. And she goes, oh, I apologize, sir. I'm so sorry I was taking so long. And I thought, isn't that how it often is? Those that are closest to us, those that are nearest to us, we treat with the most harshness, family. We have greater expectations of family, and they can do us greater harm, so we often have greater disappointments there. Fear often drives this. It's easier to assume than to ask, to fear that my concerns, my theological hobby horses, my convictions, my area of ministry, my family, my happiness, my, my my, but we've been united to one another. And the table, it signifies and it seals that to us. I was telling one of you this week that, you know, God could have very easily saved us just individually. And saved us individually and then set us off by ourselves over here just to kind of work out our salvation with fear and trembling by ourselves, but that's not what he did. He not only saved us unto himself, he saved us to one another, and he put us together in the church for a reason. And one of those reasons is so that we can lean upon one another, so that we can encourage one another, so that we can strengthen one another, so that we come alongside of one another and help one another. We're all pilgrims wrestling with indwelling sin and wrestling with the flesh and with the enemies of the church and with the world. We don't need to add wrestling with one another to the list. We're united to help and encourage and sustain one another. 
And the table signifies and seals that to us. You say, well, I don't receive much of that. No, and to be very frank, you won't with such an attitude. We all come to the table to get our food. It all runs out. But when we all come with an eye for others, all will be filled, all will be nourished, and all will be cared for. And that's Paul's point. It's a mistake that in chapter 12, he then goes into the spiritual gifts that we've been given, not for myself, but for one another. as part of the searching that happens as we take the table together. We may ask ourselves, do I have any uncharitable thoughts of others in this body? Any lack of forgiveness? Anything that I need to ask for forgiveness for? Am I committed to them? Am I serving others in this body? Maybe even more importantly, am I I'm making it easy for others to love and to serve me in this body. We all come like that. All are nourished and all are filled. The table is of such significance because it signifies and seals our union with one another. But second, the table is of such significance because it signifies and seals our union with Christ. Verses 26 through 31. Paul makes this abundantly clear. There is a reciprocal sign and seal that is happening here. The table is primarily the third point that we will get into. It's a sign of Christ's union with us. But it is also a reciprocal sign. That it is a sign and seal of our union with Christ. That you and I are pledging before one another. That we're pledging before Christ. That we're pledging to our own hearts and minds and souls that we have placed our faith in Christ. That I have united myself to Christ by the power of His Spirit. That I am His and seeking to walk in holiness and conformity to Him. That I don't just belong to myself. No, I don't at all. I belong to Him. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's done by those who notice, verse 24 and verse 25, who do this in remembrance of me. That is, they know Christ and what He has done. Paul says in verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We're proclaiming that Christ Jesus' death was not one of many. We have faith. He was not the death of a martyr. His was the death of a Savior, my Savior. There's faith. We proclaim the truth to our own hearts and souls and one another's and to a watching world. It's a sign and seal not only of our union with one another, but of our union with Christ. And so... To examine ourselves to see if there is such faith. When we see the table laid out before us, we are to examine ourselves. Do I have faith? 
And if I do have faith, am I walking in this faith? We are to examine ourselves. Examine our lives. Do I have any unconfessed sin? Any unrepentant sin in my life? Am I pursuing righteousness or have I ignored his calls to be kind to my spouse, to be patient with my children, to work hard at my studies, to work hard in the workplace, to work hard in the home? Have I turned a deaf ear to his calls to be generous with my finances? Have I turned a deaf ear to called to stop coveting someone else's spouse, someone else's life, looking at inappropriate websites, living for myself. We're pledging our union with Him. We're His. And we've come to Him in faith. And it's by faith that we receive the table. It's by faith that there's any benefit to us. The table is not magical. It doesn't just work by taking. It works by the Spirit as we receive it in faith. God gives us His grace in Christ. But having looked within, we must also guard against an error here. There are certain traditions in which the table is held in such reverence that very few ever come to it. Verse 20 and 27 and 28 are often the reasons that are given. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And some rightly judge themselves, examine themselves, but they come to the wrong conclusion. They think, my sin is too great to come to this table. My faith is too wobbly to come to this table. My righteousness is too lacking to come to this table. But that's a misunderstanding. Notice it's an adverb that Paul uses here. It's not an adjective. We are all unworthy. We are all not what we should be in Christ. If you feel unworthy in coming to the table, you have the greatest evidence of being worthy of coming to the table. Christ came to save sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, Jesus said, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not an adjective. It's an adverb. Do not come, he says, unworthily. Paul says it's the manner in which we come that concerns him. The sacrament is a means of grace. It's for the unworthy. It's for the one who is struggling with their sin. It is for the one who has the guilt of sin weighing upon them. 
It is for the one who says, my faith is not as strong as I desire it to be or that it should be. It's for the one who is confessing that and repenting of that and coming to the Lord and asking, help me, Lord Jesus. And he extends that grace through the table to strengthen you, to nourish you, to, to feed you. It's, it's bread in a cup for a reason. He could have ordained so many other things, couldn't he? He could have said, every time you, I don't know, pick up a piece of cotton, do this in remembrance of me. He could have said, every time you scratch your nose, do it in remembrance of me. He could have used anything. But he uses bread and he uses drink. Why? Because you and I need that nourishment daily. This body fails. This body fails if it misses a meal. We need it daily. And so he is saying to you, as your body needs food and drink, so as readily your soul needs my grace. To be sustained. To be nourished. Keep on keeping on. And he signifies that to you and seals that to you as you come to the table. What does he mean by unworthily then? The one who comes unworthily is the one who comes irreverently. Who comes with little care as they come to the table. The Corinthians were treating it as a feast in which to gorge themselves. They were in sin and they were unrepentant about it. They were not coming to it and treating it as a remembrance of the Lord's death, as a true communion with Him. They didn't understand the significance of it or they just didn't care. By the way, this is why we do not allow small children to come to take communion until they have made a credible profession of faith and been admitted to the table by the elders of the church because they must be able to discern the difference between the Lord's table and snack time lest they come unworthily. They must be able to discern whether they have and are committed to this body and are serving it whether they have any offense against anyone or anyone has an offense against them. They have to be able to discern their own commitment to Christ and their walking in faithfulness and their confession of sin and their repentance unto life. So they are not able to examine themselves in this way. And so they must not come to the table unless they have profess that faith and they've been examined by the elders of the church who have the rule and the governance over the table to admit them to the table. Because those who come to the table unworthily, irreverently, haphazardly, or ignorantly are defaming what is signified. There is this really, I think, one of the weirdest accounts in all the scriptures. Uh, they're in Exodus 4. You remember in Exodus 3 and beginning of chapter 4, God has called 
Moses to go into Egypt to go free his people from, from the Egyptians. And Moses is very timid. And Moses says, oh, Lord, Lord, I don't speak well. I'm not the man that calls somebody else, have someone else do this. And God says to Moses, no, you're the man. I says, but God, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think, no, you're him, Moses. God, I, you're him, Moses. And then Moses is on his way down to Egypt in Exodus 4. And what does the text say? It's absolutely striking. The Lord was seeking to put him to death. What? You just went through all of this discussion to convince him to go down to be the redeemer of your people, to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He went through all of this to convince him. And now he's actually on his way, and it says that God's seeking to put him to death. Why? Well, as often happens in life, the wife has more understanding than the husband. Zipporah understands. She takes a flint knife, and she circumcises their son and throws the flesh at Moses' feet. What's happened? Moses had forsaken the sign of the covenant. And that was tantamount to forsaking the covenant itself. Because there is such a close relationship between the sign of the covenant and the covenant that as Moses forsook the sign of the covenant, it was tantamount in God's eyes to forsaking the covenant itself. And Paul is saying the same thing about the Lord's Supper. Don't you understand? Some of you have come to the table unworthily. You've eaten of the bread. You've drank of the cup unworthily, haphazardly, without any care or concern, treating it as snack time, as a way to gorge yourself. And what's happened? You've fallen asleep. Some of you have literally died. And some of you are sick because of it. Why? Because there is such a close relationship between the sign and the thing signified. must come worthily. You must recognize what's happening here. This is also why we give a warning before we invite all those who are in Christ to come to the table. It's a blessing, but it's only those who receive it in faith. Again, not perfect faith, but faith. You don't have to have perfect faith to come to the table because you have a perfect Savior, but you have to have faith. This is why we communicate that those who, should, those who take should also be a member of a Bible-believing church. You know, this rubs a lot of people in our culture wrong, wrongly, adverb. They think it's unbiblical. It's actually very biblical. It's a safeguard. Can't detail it in the sermon. I would be happy to walk you through the biblical evidence for membership in a local church. And we do that in our membership class. But as we become members of a local church, we place ourselves under the governance and the care of elders of that church, who, as we shall see in the weeks to come, as we return back to Matthew in the fall, that they have been given the keys of the kingdom. 
It is the elders who God has ordained, who he has called to himself, and he set them in authority over the church. As he says, to bind and to loose on earth. And what they bind and loose on earth is bound and loosed in heaven. And it is the elders who make sure that the word is rightly proclaimed in the midst of the people. That the sacraments are rightly administered in the midst of the people. And that church discipline is exercised. The three marks of the church. The word preached, the sacraments rightly administered in church discipline. And they all go hand in hand. You can't have the word rightly preached if people can live any way they want to. No, so there's necessity of church discipline. You can't have the sacraments without the word preached or without church discipline because there are some that will defame the table and they'll do injury to themselves. And so it's all tied together. The word, the sacraments, and church discipline. And so why we encourage that you would only partake of the table if you have placed yourself under the authority of Governing local church, unite yourself to Christ by becoming a member of a local church. Many balk at that because we don't like authority. But authority is not oppressive in the body of Christ. It's actually freeing. It's supportive, it's serving, loving, prayerful, sacrificing, giving, protecting, Authority that your elders have. Your elders, hear me very clearly. Your elders, your pastors, are for you. They are for you. That's what they've been ordained to. That's what they've been called to. We, uh, you know, we have interns flow through the church. And we're committed to this, raising up men that we can send off into the pastorate because it has this multiplication effect where you can, you can influence literally thousands of people by training up the right man. And you know, when these guys get through our internship program, they all say the exact same thing. I say, what has been of the greatest benefit to you? There are a lot of things that they benefit from. But the thing that they primarily, every single one of them without fail has said the greatest benefit to them has been sitting in on session meetings where our elders are meeting together. And hearing the care with which those men shepherd this congregation. I wish I could take every one of you in there for a meeting. It's not an oppressive authority. It's a freeing one. Your faith doesn't have to be perfect. As you come to Christ and you become a member of His church and you place yourself under such authority. And that leads to our last point. The table is significant because it signifies and seals our union not only with one another only our union with Christ, but lastly and most importantly, the table is significant because it signifies and seals Christ's union with us. 
Sometimes we come to the table and we are far too introspective. We are thinking about, okay, where have I committed sin this past week, the past couple of weeks, the past month? Uh, where is it that I have a grievance against someone in the church and am unforgiving, etc.? And, and that all needs to happen, but sometimes it just purely becomes an introspective activity. And it feels very solemn. It feels very morose. Robert Murray McShane's wonderful statement that he journaled one time is helpful here where he said, you know, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. And so it should be at the table. You do search yourself, but for every search of yourself, you take ten looks to Christ. Because it is primarily a sign and a seal of Christ's union with us. Verse 25 this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says this is a new covenant as opposed to the old Mosaic covenant. What was but a shadow in shadow form in the Passover meal of the old Mosaic covenant is now revealed in all its glory in the new covenant. Because the old covenant was ratified by the blood of animals, this one is ratified by the blood of the God-man. Where that old covenant was something that was temporary. His is everlasting and eternal. Remember, though, that in that Passover, you'll remember on that night, that the, the destroying angel that had passed over the houses of the Israelites that had taken the blood of that lamb and they had painted their door posts and the, the lintels of their door. And so when the, the angel of death passed over their house and he saw that there was blood that covered over their house. He passed over. He struck down the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. It's a sign to the angel of death. And I look forward to this reality. That by virtue of the blood of Christ that covers you over, the wrath of God passes you. forward to that reality. As a saved family, they would, in that Passover meal, they would, they would take a lamb and they would cook the lamb and then they were ordered to consume all of it. Why, why is that? Why were they ordered to consume the entire lamb? Because it was an appropriation of faith. It was they were saying and signifying that they were appropriating by faith that lamb. And so the blood of the lamb covered them over. And so you and I, when we take the table, it is an act of faith where we are saying we, we are appropriating this lamb. He has come to us. He has unified himself with us. He is communing with us. And I am appropriating him by faith. I'm taking him to myself by faith, and he is uniting with me and making me his. And so we eat with him and we eat of him at the Lord's table. And God's declaring to us there is no wrath to be executed here, there is no judgment to fall here. There is no condemnation here. There is no hatred or enmity here. There's love. 
There's fellowship. There's communion. There's peace. These are mine. They are in union with me. And what do we mean by saying that we eat his body and that we drink his blood? Some have maintained that this is purely symbolic. Jesus is just using symbolic language and that really what is happening at the table is just a bare sign and that is all that it is. That we are just remembering. It's just a cognitive action. That's all it is where we're looking back and just taking a bare sign and remembering what the Lord Jesus did. But that makes no sense. Because how could you incur judgment by partaking of something that's just mere remembrance? Just a bare sign. No, there is something that is more here. There is actually grace that is given to the believer as they partake of faith. And there is judgment that is given for the person that doesn't take it in faith. So it can't be a bare sign. There are others in the history of the church and different traditions that have gone to the other extreme. And they said, well, Jesus said, this is my body. And he said, this is my blood. So what happens? What must happen is that the bread and the wine are transformed. That the bread becomes the literal, physical body of Christ. That the blood becomes the, the cup becomes the literal, physical blood of Christ. Didn't he say, this is my body? This is my blood. And so as you take the bread and as you take the cup, you are literally physically with your mandibles and with your teeth, you are grinding the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. That is also nonsense. It's simply sacramental language. When we saw in Exodus, when... The Lord said to Moses there last week, he said, this is my covenant with you, circumcision. Is circumcision the covenant? No. It's a sign of the covenant. It's sacramental language. There's such a close relationship between the sign and the things signified that they can be crossed for one another. Jesus often uses words like this, what is called a metonymy in English. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Is he a vine? No. He says, I am the door. Is he a literal physical door? No. Metonymy. In other places in Scripture, we see similar things. In Exodus 17, which is quoted in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock from which the water flowed in the desert was Christ. Was the rock actually Christ? No. The dove is called the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3. Was the dove actually a spirit? No. The Ark of the Covenant is called God's face in Psalm 84 and Psalm 42. Is, is, is that true? No. The thing that is signified has such a close relationship to the thing itself. The sign and the thing itself that it, they can be interchanged. It is clear from Scripture that the Scripture still calls it bread and wine after it has supposedly been changed, let alone that in that first meal, Christ is still sitting there with his disciples bodily, physically, when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. There's another tradition in the church which has taught that the bread and the wine change, but don't change, but that Christ 
real presence is locally present in, under, and with the bread and the cup. In, with, and under. And it is said by those that hold such a view that Christ is locally present in the Lord's Supper. He's locally present as magnetism is locally present in a magnet. And so though the bread doesn't actually change into his body, and though the blood doesn't actually change into his blood, he is locally and he is, he is, he is physically present there with, under, and around the bread and the cup. And so when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, you are partaking of him physically as he is locally present. But there's a problem here too. Because where is Christ physically and locally? He is bodily at the right hand of the Father. He is there. So what does it mean? Can we say that we eat Christ's body and that we drink Christ's blood? And the answer is yes. We have to say that. How? Spiritually. He is not physically, bodily, locally present, but He is really present. He is really present by His Spirit. There have been some that have understood that this means that as we partake of the table, that you and I are lifted as it were up into the heavens, and that there we feast upon Christ. There have others that have said, no, it must be that it is Christ is brought down to us. I don't know. Regardless, it doesn't really matter. We're spiritually partaking of Him. We're feasting upon Him. We're drinking of Him. And He is giving us grace. We're communing with Him. As He draws near to us. And He is sealing our redemption to us. Sealing to us His sacrificial death. His redeeming grace. It seals to us that Christ's love is ours. It's not just that He loves, but that He loves me. It's not just that He died, but that He died for me. It's not just that He covers over sins, but He covered over my sins. He's in union with me. So it seals to us that we belong to Christ. We're united with Him in His death and His burial and His resurrection, and it is to give you assurance. And who doesn't need assurance? Assurance that our sins are forgiven when I just fall into it over and over. Assurance when the guilt of our sin weighs upon us and it just feels like, as the psalmist says, that our bones are breaking. Assurance when you're going through rough times and it feels like this is just trial upon trial upon trial. Does he not care for me? Does he not love me? Does he turn a blind eye to me? The table gives you assurance that you are the object of his love. You're the object of his care. He has united himself with you, and he cannot deny himself. You're his. And he will not leave you or abandon or forsake you. 
are given this tangible word. What an act of incredible grace and kindness. Because as we said last week, our faith is so slight, it is so feeble, it is so frail, as Calvin said, that it needs to be propped up on every side. And so he gives us something we can touch, we can taste, we can smell, we can feel that says as real as this bread is, as real as this cup is, so as real is the grace of God to me. It's mine. It's mine. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have in your kindness given us the table and baptism as true signs and seals of your covenant promises. May we be a people who understand the significance of this table, understand that it is a true sign of our union with one another, of our union with Christ, and of Christ's union with us. Oh, may it therefore be a table that is filled with joy, that is filled with love, that is filled with thanksgiving. For your honor and praise, in Christ's name, amen.